Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to a live episode of Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. This is our first ever live episode and features a conversation between Jonathan Northcroft, Chief Football Writer of the Sunday Times, and his counterpart at the Times in Scotland, Michael Grant. It's chaired by myself, Martin Gregg, and it took place at Glasgow's I Write Book Festival on March the 29th, 2019. Jonathan is the author of Deadlines and Darts with Delhi and Michael wrote the definitive book on the early years of Sir Alex Ferguson, Fergie Rises. As always, we focus on process. The boys tell us about their best and worst interviews. Hello, Gareth Bale. We talk about the place of match reports in the modern media and the joys of watching live football rather than from the comfort of the armchair. Finally, we've been asked a lot when the next season Between the Lines will be dropping. Listen up at the end of the show for more details on that one. Enjoy. Obviously, this is March the 29th. We're not going to talk about the B word, but we are going to talk about the K word. Let's start with Kazakhstan. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think part of what we want to achieve in this event is to kind of peel back the layers of what it's like being a frontline football reporter. A bit about kind of behind the scenes. Michael, you, you were on this kind of ill-fated trip. Rather than just reflect on how bad Scotland are, that's the kind of the easy part. Tell us a little bit about what it was like being on that trip. Three years ago, we went to Kazakhstan for the first time for a Celtic Champions League qualifying game, and I thought, what a a lovely, novel experience this is. You know, a place that you're not going to go to. I know some of the people in the oil industry would go to Kazakhstan, but I thought, this is a one-off experience for me, and I'll never be back, and it's a great privilege to be sent there for your work. And uh, so that was fun the first time. And then the following year, we went back to Kazakhstan for another Celtic qualifying game, and that was slightly less fun. And then now we've gone back to Kazakhstan for a third time, and uh, this was no fun whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> so, it, it, actually, funnily enough, there's probably a kind of serious point here that this is where Scotland, Scottish football is now, that we're kind of placed on the margins. Uh, and and I, I mean that only kind of slightly jokingly, that uh, you know, we are now, our club sides are now having to do qualifying rounds against teams from the likes of Kazakhstan. And it is a kind of pushing us out into the into the margins a little bit. In terms of this trip, it was actually unusually luxurious, believe it or not, because uh, the SFA pushed the boat out in terms of the preparation for this doubleheader. They hired this luxurious kind of corporate jet, the kind of thing that I'd never been on before. It was was, uh, was, was kind of playing that rock stars would have, you know, bands would go on (laughs) around the world tours with sofas up the back, leather reclining chairs. The plan was that the players would be able to lie flat out and get a relaxing <coughs> six or seven hour flight to Kazakhstan. While we were in Kazakhstan, the, the players were all staying on UK time so that their bodies would stay in sync and that when the kickoff time came on Thursday, it would all, it would all work well. Now, if any of you have picked up on the result in Kazakhstan, that didn't exactly work too well, you know. So, but in, in terms of the, uh, the preparation, I mean, it's easy to kick the SFA, and we have kicked the SFA, and we will continue to kick them about the things that get wrong. But I, I do actually have a little bit of sympathy for them on this one because they have tried to arm the players and the manager with the very best facilities because their argument is that guys like Andy Robertson, when they're going around Europe with Liverpool, or uh, you know, to a slightly lesser extent, the Celtic guys going to the Champions League, they're getting the very best, and they can't come to Scotland and, and be treated with kind of cheaper options of all that. So, um, you know, the, the, the intent is there, the heart is in the right place, but of course, we saw what happened with the result, and it was, uh, it was horrific. What was the experience like of being in, in that stadium and obviously going two goals behind so quickly? Uh, it must be quite a surreal experience to be sitting there and watching Scotland 2-0 down to such a, a tiny nation so quickly. No, no, I've seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> 
quite quite used to it. To be honest, <laughs> uh, to be honest, I mean, you do. There's no question uh, when you're writing on a, a deadline like that. Now the game was nine o'clock at night in Kazakhstan, but that's three o'clock in the afternoon at home. Usually, that would be really advantageous from a newspaper point of view because you would have lots of time before the the deadline of like maybe half ten, eleven o'clock at night. But of course, these days you have to file also to internet so that it goes online immediately. So you're writing a match report immediately. You don't have much time to think, really, or, or certainly react in any kind of passionate or patriotic way. It's just about getting it done. And um, full enough, to go 2-0 down, you do think about it differently, and you just think, right, well, this is clearly going to be an enormously momentous result. It's got huge consequences. The chances are we're probably not going to come back from this. But if we do it at best, it might be a draw. And then, of course, they scored or conceded a third goal early in the second half. I don't know about you, Johnny, but it, these games are actually a little bit easier to write because mm-hmm. you've got clarity in your head about the, the way that it's going to go. The, the worst-case scenario is, when you're covering a match live, is last-minute game-changing goals are, are just hellish, really, because you've got to change the whole narrative of your match report and you've really got no time to do it. But if a team is 2-0 up or 2-0 down and then goes 3-0 up and 3-0 down, you've got maybe half an hour to really formulate your thoughts and sometimes that can be beneficial in the quality of your writing. But yeah, but in terms of Martin's question, all you want to say, we have covered umpteen absolutely hellish results for Scotland and performances and uh, look forward to many more. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, I'm always interested in your perspective as a slightly detached observer. I know you, you experienced the highs and lows of being a Scotland mm. fan as much as the rest of us, but um, you know, you've been down south for nigh on a couple of decades now. Mm. And you know, what, what do you, how do you reflect on when things like that happen in terms of just kind of put, putting it in its context? How, how did you reflect on that whole experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a bit like Michael, in a different way, you, you become, I don't know, coarsened or, or immune to it over the years. Each disappointment becomes rather familiar. And, and my experience, I mean, I, I covered the World Cup in 98 with Mike. We were talking about that before we came on. Scotland's last World Cup and we didn't, we didn't think it would be that at the time but um, it just seems so long ago now and then I was there when Scotland drew with the Faroe Islands 1-1, grabbed a 1-1 draw and I thought that was about as bad as it was ever going to get came down to England in, in 2001 and I guess what I've experienced from afar if we're talking about in, in, in press terms is back in 2001 2002 when Scotland started failing and not qualifying for, for tournaments and having near misses, I guess English colleagues still laughed at me at that point. They still sort of wanted to poke fun at Scotland, whereas it's actually now become a sympathy thing, which is, which is almost worse than anything else. And I was at the under-21 game, the England under-21 game on that Thursday, and I walked into the, the, the press room and people were kind of asking if I was okay and did I want a <laughs> glass of water or something. Uh, and... I mean, there's two things that strike you when you're in, in England. One is the absolute lack of interest, and I hate to say it, but there's an there's absolute lack of interest in, and knowledge in Scottish football. And you really notice that in terms of the old firm, where when you're here, you, everything seems so big and important, and then you go down south, and it doesn't register. And it's the same with the Scottish national team. Um, I think there's a very vague sense of what the issues that Scotland have got are. I was arguing with people last week to almost say don't patronise us because I was getting a lot of English colleagues and I did something on BBC Radio as well and the discussion went along the lines of what do you expect? You don't have any players in Scotland so you know you can't, you can't be too surprised and I actually feel as a Scot down south that a line has to be drawn and you have to have some semblance of self-respect and say to people well wait a minute you know we don't expect much but you can't tell me that I shouldn't expect my country to not get beaten 3-0 by, by Kazakhstan but the, the, the view down there is so I guess negative and, and dismissive for Scottish football now that it wasn't a surprise and it didn't really register as, as a big story in England at all, it was, it was on to their next triumph. I mean in terms of the, your book Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, you know, a big theme in that is this idea of the, the FA, English FA, this cultural change that they've kind of undergone and the way they've changed things, the way they've changed their attitudes to, um, to the media, the way they <coughs> present the players. That was really interesting to me, the kind of systemic changes 
Um, and I'll ask Michael to come back in after this as well and talk a bit about that from a Scottish perspective. So rather just saying we don't have enough good players, <coughs> maybe you could reflect a bit on what England have done and then we can link it back into yeah. to Scottish issues. Well, I mean, the, the, there's things that England have got that Scotland just can't compete with. Money's the, the most obvious thing. I mean, the, the money that you see is, is incredible. I, I, looking at Callum Hudson-Odoi, who's not, played a, not started a single Premier League game and is going to get paid £100,000 a week to stay at Chelsea. That, that, that tells you everything about the, the money down there, and, and therefore the money that goes into the academies is starting to produce incredible players. Scotland can't compete with that. But the thing that does strike me, having seen it up close with England and the FA, and that there's no excuse for Scotland not to be able to do, is have a plan. I did the 2006 World Cup for England. That was a real low point for them. The golden generation bombed. Then they didn't qualify for 2008. That was a kind of Kazakhstan moment for them. But I think since then, there's been a a long, slow process of the English soul-searching and trying to come up with a strategy, showing a bit of humility, trying to learn from other nations, um, putting quite a long, slow-burn technical process in place through... Dan Ashworth through Gareth Southgate through Trevor Brooking that really is starting to bear spectacular fruit, particularly in the last couple of years, with bumps along the road, with defeats to Iceland, with the 2014 World Cup, but a sense that there was still a plan. Now, looking from afar, I don't see a plan in Scotland, and that, that worries me. And if we're talking about the, 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 the press, it's impressive to me that the, the, the press relations have improved with the English national team in terms of, of access and, and a much greater closeness to the players from journalists. But that's all part of this holistic technical plan that they've got, where they thought, how can we take away all the negative things that are associated with playing for England? And one of the negatives that the English players always had was a fear of the press, particularly the tabloid press on Fleet Street. And the, 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 all the stuff I wrote about in the book with deadlines and darts with Delhi playing darts with the England players, um, having a Super Bowl-style press conference before the, the tournament where you could literally walk around the room and speak to any player at, at length that you wanted to. The barriers are broken down. At that press conference, Danny Rose actually poured his heart out about depression and, and, and was quite confessional. But all of that's part of a plan. All of that's part of the FA in England looking at every aspect that they can tweak to try and make England players play better. And bringing it back to Scotland, all I see is the same discussion that I remember from 20 years ago about kids, playstations, lack of facilities, um, the weather, all that, all that kind of stuff. That's all true, but there doesn't seem to be that fundamental thinking that has gone on in England, and there's no reason why that can't be the case. I mean, it's interesting, you were talking about the levels of professionalism the SFA are trying to hit now with the, the way they, they operate these trips, but... Some of, some of what Johnny says, Chime, will you, Michael, in terms of like an overarching strategy? Do you still feel there's a void there in Scotland? Yeah, if you remember, um, <coughs> Henry MacLeish, the former uh, First Minister, was commissioned to do a, a kind of think tank, not our first think tank, but the, the most recent one. And the kind of headline from it, the, f- the very first point he made was we need to spend about £500 million on facilities. And then all the rest of the, there was about another, mm. that was nearly about 100, I think, recommendations. And most of those 100 recommendations were, have been a, a passed and approved and enacted, but not the first one. And that was, that was the one he said, well, we need this, and then we can do all this. Mm-hmm. Now, you could say it was pie in the sky. We were never going to get £500 million worth of investment and, uh, and uh, facilities, but his findings were that that's what we needed. Mm-hmm. You know? So I don't know where you get the money from because the Scottish mm-hmm. government hasn't particularly got the resources to, to, to spend a lot of money on, on football Scottish football itself, the SFA, is not cash rich at the moment. They're struggling with sponsorship deals, title sponsors. But, but that, that always struck me that, um, you know, the, the, McLeish's core point was we need facilities. Now, people will always say to you, or some people will always say, well, we didn't have facilities back in the day and it was fine. Mm. You know, we won a European Cup and a couple of Cup winners' cups at Gothenburg. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we did that without, with street football and without facilities. But I, I think that is kind of head in the sand stuff because kids have moved on and kids have got a million other demands on their leisure time or, or, or interests. And if we haven't got the facilities to, um, to try and drive them into playing football, then it's going to be problematic, and you're seeing it. Um, but I must say, having said that, if we're, you know, to, to pin it back to Kazakhstan, I think we're, we're, there are parallel issues here. And Johnny is absolutely right that if you look at the squad of players that we have, if they're all available, mm. should be good enough to beat mm. Kazakhstan easily. 
And I think that the fact that um, call-offs has been a, a recurring theme of, of, of this manager and previous managers' uh, reigns, that uh, multiple call-offs of, of kind of high-profile players, I think that's not coincidental. I think that, is, uh, that speaks to a, kind of, um, a slight kind of marginalisation of the Scottish team compared to the club sides. You know, I think that we're in a country here that, unlike England, the club sides are so, the club sides are so powerful, the Rangers and Celtic especially, that um, their interests are seen within the game as being greater than the national team. And I think that, that that contributes to us not qualifying and the fact that we keep not qualifying, uh, it, it diminishes the Scotland team. The call-offs the call really worry me because for Scotland with a small player pool to, to thrive, surely the very first thing you've got to do is get your best players on the pitch. And if Southgate has been able to do one significant thing above all others with England, it's, it's to make that whole experience of playing for England a really positive thing he, you know he, he talks very positively about it he, he fosters a, a positive environment what I was talking about with the press was part of making it a more positive thing and I've noticed the big change in, in, in the, there's a lack of call-offs now there's a there's an appetite for the best players to, to want to be there and Mike's right about facilities and, and, and lack of investment but I, I don't think it doesn't cost any money to come up with a plan for how you want your team to play, how you, how you want it to, what you want it to look like, what you want playing for the national team to, to represent. And I don't get the sense that, I don't know, since Craig Brown, there was, a, there was a sort of a genuine, maybe Walter Smith had it, but there was a genuine Club Scotland feel, there was a genuine sense of identity of, 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 of what playing for Scotland should be. And I see it in England now. I see, I see a very clear idea of, of, of what it means for them to represent their country, I see them enjoying themselves and I see them playing a more enlightened brand of football and I think it also comes from having a younger manager I have to say that younger players I think more than ever before need um, charismatic managers, managers who connect with them on a human level I think that's just something that's happened with young people in general in society and if you look at the successful managers like Guardiola, like Klopp, like Pochettino they're very very people focused it's nothing new, Jock Steen was, was one of the first sort of people focused managers that was revolutionary at the time but I think having Gareth Southgate who's got very big human qualities and is younger and connects with younger players, Scotland don't obviously have a manager like that or haven't had a manager like that for some time. Yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, Michael O'Neill. I was just going to say that, I mean, the, the SFA obviously tried to get Michael O'Neill, mm -hmm. a young manager, I suppose you, you know, loosely comparable to Southgate. Mm -hmm. They don't get him and they go to Alec McLeish. Now, you know, that's fine. There's two different ways of managing, but that doesn't hint at strategy there, you know. Yeah, exactly. uh, and my worry is that the senior <coughs> players and the players with the bigger teams in Scotland just see the Scotland team as kind of unfashionable and a bit of a pain in the neck and something that they could take or leave or maybe do without. I mean, how many times are we talking about call-offs and how many times are we talking about guys saying they want to manage injuries and they want to retire early from Scotland to preserve their, mm. their club careers? Now, if we are qualifying for tournaments, that doesn't happen, but it's, it's chicken and egg stuff, you know? I mean, I, th I think Southgate's a fascinating character in Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, and I think he's emblematic of this kind of cultural change. Even though he talks about English identity, I think, is quite interesting, yeah. and maybe could reflect that a little bit in that. Just, just to add as well, we were chatting briefly earlier on, and we were name-checking a, a column, one of the papers today, saying, what about Darren Fletcher as, as a new Scotland manager? And not saying we should appoint Darren Fletcher, but it was quite interesting. Like when, when you mentioned that, I kind of sat up straight. I yeah. thought, well, that's quite, <clears throat> that's quite different, you know? Yeah. Maybe something like that that just <clears throat> says, no, we're, we're going to walk in this direction now. Well, I mentioned younger managers, and I think, <clears throat> I think the point is that that old-style um, authoritarian uh, style of leadership has probably gone from not just football, not just sport, but, but business. I think people have got to try and lead in a different way, and that's something that, I suppose, comes easier to, to people who are closer to the generation that they're trying to lead. But it's certainly a big part of, of, of Southgate's qualities. Is he the best tactician in the world? No. As, as he had a glittering coaching career? No. But what he has done is he's played for England. He's been part of the system. He, he's, he's a very intelligent guy. And I think he speaks about Englishness and identity in a way that reflects his team. You know, it's a very multicultural team. It's a very diverse team in terms of different social backgrounds. You've got middle-class guys like Eric Dye. You've got working-class guys like, like Raheem Sterling. And, and I think Gareth's got the intelligence to talk about Englishness and being English in a way that's completely different to the way 
Sam Allardyce did or, or Roy Hodgson did, and then you had the forum managers who had no feel for it whatsoever. And I actually do think these things are important because, yeah. as Michael said, if there's a danger that players will see playing for their country as just a chore where nothing can come of it that's any good apart from you know, criticism when you lose. You've got to give them an identity. You've got to tell them a reason why you're there. You've got to inspire them, I guess. And that has come quite easily to, to Southgate. Um, we were talking earlier about Guardiola before we came on. And I don't know if you've seen the Man City all or nothing documentary, but the, 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 the striking thing for me from that was not that Pep Guardiola is a, a genius tactician. I think we all knew that. But you see those scenes of him in the dressing room almost putting on a performance. And I didn't know that about him, but his, his kind of charisma and man management that even, even the best manager in the world in terms of his intellect actually reverts to, to being this sort of inspirational figure that c- can connect with the young players around him. I thought that was really, really interesting. That, that told yeah. me that that is as important as anything um, about Pep Guardiola, any, any of the tactical theories. It's, it's ability to sell that idea of football, and I think managers have got to be able to do that. Does that idea of somebody left field, does that resonate with you? You know, somebody like, not necessarily Darren Fletcher, but somebody that, that has that kind of charisma that would connect with, with younger players and, and make the Scotland team fashionable again, apart from yeah, anything else? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It would bring a kind of energy and a, yeah. a youthfulness that's been missing. And I think exactly. what you tend to find is that either club size or national size, they swing from, from kind of one pole to the next. You know, you have a you have a young manager, he doesn't work, you go for an old mm. manager, you go for a foreign manager, the next guy's a club legend. You know, they, there's a, tends to be a kind of reaction and a, and a rebound. I mean, we're talking about Dan Fletcher, yeah, I mean, he, he, he would be an interesting appointment if... If he if he has coaching <laughs> credentials, I mean, who knows? I, I think uh, I think you would still have those you know systemic yeah. attitude problems, and to to a degree, you'd be kind of swimming against the tide of the of the way the club football uh, uh, agenda and um, priorities. But one thing I've seen a few references to over the last few days since Kazakhstan and San Marino is that there's an apathy towards the national team, and I, and I don't think that's I don't think that's true about supporters or the public mm. in general. I mean, I think you could maybe say that. It might be applicable to some of the clubs and some of the players, but you had 3,000 supporters going to San Marino last weekend. They're okay, maybe they're like a jolly up and a booze and all the rest of it. That's fine. But if we were going well, you would be filling Hamden. Even for the even for the run of the mill games, Scotland are still traditionally a 25,000, 30,000 crowd, even for for the smaller ones. And you know, this is a nation that hasn't qualified for anything for 22 years and we still can draw a crowd. For those of us that are old enough to remember that France 98, and I'm sure a lot of people here do, we really miss that excitement that the whole country would have between the kind of November qualification for final mm. and the actual finals seven, eight months later. It's the most exciting period you can imagine. I mean, it just, it's momentum, it's electricity. It just builds and builds and builds. And the newspapers and the media are full of it. It's a brilliant experience if you're part of it. But we haven't been part of it. And, I mean, looking from afar, from across the border, when England were doing well at the World Cup last summer, OK, mm. you know, people here can have mixed feelings about what <laughs> that, how that was going to go and uh, maybe an element of relief about how it did finish up. But it looked bloody exciting, yeah. to be honest with you. You know, the, the crowd scenes around, London, uh, around England, you thought, God, imagine being part of that and your team doing something and, and, and getting somewhere, you know. And for us, that would just be to qualify for something again in the meantime. But... Um, I think we have really lost out on a lot of investment and income and just collective experiences and excitement from the fact that we've been just absolutely marginalised since 98. There is obviously a holistic approach with England and that's, that's fascinating. One of the really interesting parts of the book, and you've kind of touched on this already, was how they changed the, the kind of PR around the England yeah. team and they told the story differently. Um, Neil, do you want to flip, we've prepared an audio-visual spectacular for you this <laughs> evening. Well, two slides actually. <laughs> Neil's going to click on to the next slide. So, I mean, I, pictures tell a thousand <laughs> words. Why, why don't you pick it up from here, Johnny? Oh dear, there's nothing like seeing a middle-aged man and a slim young athlete juxtaposed. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, this was, I guess it was, a, it, was, it was gimmicky, but it also worked and it was typical of England's media strategy. They, they decided that they were going to it, make it fun. So in the team hotel, they had this, instead of like a normal press conference area, they had like a common room that players and, 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 and press were supposed to mingle in. And it, was a bit st- it wasn't as 
friendly, so that was a bit stage managed, but it did work in general. So you had a bowling alley, uh, you had pool tables, and we did end up playing bowling and pool with the players. And then there was a daily darts competition that was a kind of in-joke between the press and, and the players. It started in Euro 2016, where you know, England were so embattled in that tournament, obviously went out to Iceland, but even before then there'd been a, a really negative vibe around them to the point where the players were playing this sort of internal darts competition and Joe Hart, who took, took it upon himself to be kind of like the leader of the pack, banned the players from discussing the results of their darts competition to, to journalists. Goodness knows why, but that's how bad relations had got, not telling you how, how the darts went. So in order to symbolise the openness, they actually decided to have a, a daily darts competition. I was on third on the third day, and I was I have to say I was quite confident because I, I, I play a bit of darts. I used to play a little bit of darts in, in, in Liverpool. I had a nice practice throw, um, got about 134 on one of my three dart challenge. But what I did learn was then Deli Alley came in to play me. There were sky cameras, there were uh, radio reporters, and for want of a better way of putting it, the, the professional athlete absolutely thrived and my bottle completely crashed my arm felt as uh, as, as heavy as it could be I had sweat patches um, and the frustrating thing is that Delhi seemed to have no idea how to actually play darts so he just threw randomly at the middle of the board uh, that will be if I can say he couldn't really count either but <laughs> but it didn't matter because he uh, just for the record I'm sure Delhi can count perfectly fine but he just didn't appear to on that day. He sort of ran quite randomly through 50, and, and, and I think I, I scored 23 in three darts, which shamefully was actually one of the better scores uh, among the press <laughs> during, the, during the month. There were actually a couple of zeros from, from three darts. But it was, it was fun, and it was a surreal sort of thing that, you know, I, I think back to the 2006 World Cup with the golden generation, the, the Beckhams and the Nevilles and the Rooneys, and, and how you know, Hollywood that was and, and how there'd always seemed this huge distance between English press and the, and the English team, almost in opposition, which hadn't existed in Scotland at all when, when, when I covered it. And actually, I think they've, they've managed to, to move around to as close a relationship, I think, as you're ever going to get these days. We can't, we can't go back in time to the days when players and journalists genuinely mingled with each other and had genuine social relationships. But within the controlled environment, they've done a really good job in, in allowing that kind of, that sort of social space. Yeah. When, um, after Scotland stopped qualifying for, for, for tournaments, the, the Scottish papers would still invest and would still send the reporters to World Cups and European Championship finals. So some of us kind of remained on the scene and covered England because, I mean, mm. that was the kind of obvious thing to do would be to cover England. Euro 2000, World Cup in 2002, Euro 2004, yeah. World Cup 2006, went to, the, went to all the England games then. And there would have been about half a dozen of Scottish guys around that scene until eventually papers are, are constricting in Scotland and the, the, the investment wasn't there. But that point that Johnny's made about the kind of atmosphere around mm. the England camp was was it was unmissable. It was yeah. so uptight around England. You know, the the, the the kind of main press guys took themselves so seriously. The players took themselves so seriously. The kind of whole FA press operation took themselves so seriously, and the, the end result was this horrific, horrible yeah. atmosphere, tense. You know, un nobody was giving anything. The interviews were pretty crap, to be honest with you. You know, that was unsatisfying on 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 various levels. But I, 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 watching it from the outside, you're thinking England are not going to win anything with this kind of yeah. atmosphere because the tension was so extreme and the pressure on the players. Well, I remember 2002, and I knew you were there in, in Japan. But when when England went out to Brazil, and David Seaman let Ronaldinho's lob through his through his hands. David Seaman came out in the in, in the mix zone afterwards, and he got booed by yeah. a section yeah. of English he, he, press. He did, yeah, that's and right. There, there were tears in his he, eyes. There was tears in his eyes, and there were guys booing him. And I thought Scotland's press can be pretty hard on its <laughs> team, you know. But uh, that was a that was a level that I'd never seen. And it, I mean, it's guys that are then within a minute or two looking to try and interview players. Yeah, I mean that's in a, that's in the mix zone <coughs> where players and manager uh, players and uh, journalists are mixing. And okay, of course, England's journalists are going to be disappointed. But to me, that was really unprofessional, you know, because um, they're not there to boo David Seaman. They're there. No. That was my job, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to talk a little bit more about access. I want to talk a bit about 
kind of the art of interviewing as well. And beforehand, I asked you both to kind of pick your best and worst interviews. And maybe you start start with yourself, Johnny. Could you reflect on kind of contrasting experiences you've had on the beat? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about my best interviews, and there's two candidates, but I, I, I had a look at the dates, and they're, they're both within about a month of each other in 2005, which makes me sort of think I was quite decent 14 years ago and I haven't <laughs> really been any good since. But the two favourites would be Jamie Carragher because Jamie's just an incredibly personable guy and, and um, you can't fail but have fun with him and, and, and get lines out of him. But I, I think actually the interview that gave me the most satisfaction was I interviewed Oli Gunnar Solskjaer in uh, early May 2005 and at that point Oli had been out of football for nearly two years. He'd, he'd had a very, very serious knee injury at the start of the 2003-04 season and had spent a horrific sort of 18 months rehabbing, had come back, it hadn't worked. And towards the end of that season, it was, I, I, I guess, I can't actually remember if I instigated the interview or, or if he did, but he really wanted to do it. He really wanted to, I guess, pour his heart out. So I met him at Carrington, went upstairs with him on the, on the kind of mezzanine level, which is a great spec because you can see all the players walking past and Fergie comes out and there's that kind of, privileged social aspect of it that just feels great but good interviews you need great subject matter so that had great subject matter because it was a player actually wanting to tell his story not go through the motions but he told this really sort of detailed story of 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 the injury which nobody really knew at that point what the injury was but he'd he'd ruptured a, a hole in his in his the meniscus of his knee he'd had this um kind of pioneering surgery in sweden where in Gothenburg, actually, where they, they, they grew, um, in a Petri dish, they actually grew him some new meniscus using a bit of his thigh or his shin or something like that, and then stitched it in. And then he had this sort of three-month process of being strapped to a, a CPM machine, a continuous passive motion machine, which basically means you, you put your knee in a brace and you've got to sort of move it back and forwards for eight hours at a time. And all he's such a professional, he became so obsessive about this that... He even took to doing it in the middle of the night, so he was keeping his missus awake while he was sort of rolling his knee back and forward. And he, t- he told me all this. This is all sort of great copy, but he also gave me a really great insight into him as a person. He t- I asked him about 1999, and his first reaction was to say, I hate people asking me about 1999. He said, I only played for 12 minutes in that game. Why, did, why, why are people even interested in that? You know, I played much better games in football. But it was a, that was a real insight into his kind of personal pride and his sense of motivation and his sense of himself as a footballer. He's very unfussy, uh, very sort of down-to-earth, hates hype. Uh, and that was a great insight into, into that. Time is an important thing in great, in, in, you know, great experiences when you interview. So I had unlimited time with him because he wasn't playing. I think the best thing about it is that I, I came away having learned something completely new about him as a person, an insight that 14 years later I'm actually still able to use and to write about and, and I think I was able to form a, a, a connection with them at that particular point. And also, I mean, the other thing was we had space in those days in the Sunday Times. We had these big interview pieces to write that were 3,000 words long and you could let an yeah. interview breathe, whereas yeah. nowadays we've, we've got about 1,200 words but just because of all newspapers shrinking because of pagination. But that had, that had a lot of elements that are elements that are probably hard to come by these mm. days because yeah. access has changed and because the, 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 the time that we get to do interviews yeah. has changed as well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just to stay on the kind of positive experiences, like talk us through your most memorable interview. 
Uh, I would I would share Johnny's point about access and also control. You know, I mean, mm. I realised a few years ago that I was basically I'd, I'd got out of the habit of even asking for current players or or young players access to them from clubs. You know, <coughs> the days of you know getting numbers from a, even if you had a number for a player and you phoned him, the first thing he's going to say to you is, "Have the club cleared this? You know, have you, have you gone through the club to speak to me?" And of course, mm. if you go no, then that's the end of it because they don't want to upset the club. And I also find that um, you know the younger a player is, the, just the less of a story he has. I mean, it, it might be a great achievement for him to have come through what he's done, um, but by and large, they tend to be nervous. They don't tend to be media trained in Scotland, I don't think. So they're uncomfortable around journalists. They're, they're guarded. You know, I think they're actually badly advised by the club sometimes because you get the sense that being interviewed is a kind of unpleasant, kind of stressful experience for them and that they're going to be done in if they say something wrong. And believe it or not, it's really not the case. I mean, press are pretty protective to young players, you know, they'll they'll turn a deaf ear to the, to them if they if they make a slip or whatever. So that's a roundabout way of saying that I find the kind of either players towards the end of their careers or better still retired players to be far better value. The two that, that I really enjoyed doing in the last few years, uh, one was Gordon McQueen. And I think Johnny will maybe have had this as well, that sometimes even before even before you've even made the first phone call you think this is going to be good mm. because y- you know that the idea is good. Now, I knew that Gordon McQueen had had throat uh, surgery for throat cancer about three or four months earlier, and that had made a little bit of a story at the time, but he hadn't spoken since, uh, hadn't done an interview since. And I thought, well, obviously, nobody's just kind of thought to ask him, you know? So went down, did him. He was, I mean, McQueen, pretty old school, shall we say, in his views <laughs> and his... <laughs> uh, not shy about <clears throat> anything. Opinionated, outspoken, controversial. But you, So you had all of that, and I mean, his views on Bertie Volks are <laughs> best left to, after the watershed, I think, you know. But also you had the whole story of the cancer in his throat. I mean, he, mm. he, he, he's pretty gravelly voiced at the best of times, but it was incredibly throaty voice. He was speaking about how he'd had to give up his sky commentary, uh, sorry, punditry position because he, he just couldn't be heard on, on uh, television, you know. So that, that was fantastic. And the other one was Neil Cooper, the uh, former Aberdeen Rangers I was going to say Scotland player, but yeah. incredibly never played for Scotland. Mm. Now, Cooper had had a heart attack about three months earlier, and similarly, I thought, well, no, I don't think anybody's spoken to him since then. Cooper was just an incredibly effervescent, laugh a minute, <laughs> one of the lads, brilliant company. I mean, I've, I've been at events like this with Neil Cooper, and he would be up on the floor, he'd be in amongst you all with a microphone. I mean, he's just a natural entertainer, a really. <laughs> Really warm, engaging guy. So again, he was talking about the whole drama of having a heart attack and major heart surgery. And he's he's cracking jokes all the way through the anecdote about all oh, this. And I knew the I knew the guy in the ambulance. And he was talking about my mum in school and all this. And then I thought the pain in my chest was like a big girlfriend. It reminded me of a big heavy girlfriend I used to have. That. I mean, just, again, old school stuff, right? But so this was going on and on and on. He came out with this really poignant line about he thought about the Lisbon Lions and how, like, obviously with time, the Lisbon Lions are being kind of whittled down to. And he thought I would be the first of the Gothenburg team to die, you know. Mm. And he was the youngest member of them. So this, all this stuff was pouring out, and it was really nice, and it was funny and warm, and it was the easiest thing in the world to write. <laughs> it was just so easy. And of course, the the, the horrific postscript to it was that mm. Neil Cooper did die. He died about ten months later. So, uh, and it just it all just comes immediately. Yeah. Flashing back into your head, and it was uh, it was really powerful. But in terms of an interview, it was it was gold. Yeah. In terms of negative experiences, Johnny, <laughs> um, take us to one of them, and also if you can both reflect on kind of your own part in the downfall, if you like, <laughs> you come out of it and think, <laughs> you know, that that was my fault, or can you wash your hands and say, actually, you know, that was his fault. He 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 wasn't up for this. Aye, well, I mean, <laughs> I think I almost I felt a bit dirty after this this interview for certain reasons, but. Michael mentioned access and control, and I think the, the key battle that we're fighting now, particularly in the, in the modern game, is to retain our journalistic independence against the, you know, the, there's now professional PR industry in football, and it's a control of the influence they want to have over your copy, and you, you sort of bend a lot further than you used to to try and get good interviews, but uh, you know, I, I, I think on this occasion, the reason I felt that it was a bent too far, and it was, it was an interview with Gareth Bale. It was arranged by McDonald's. I had a good contact in the McDonald's press office. It sounded great, you know, do you want to come to Wales? Gareth Bale's going to be 
presenting some strips at a local boys club. You know, just you and Gareth, you'll get to see him with the kids. I thought, great, you know, one of the one of the world's top players, bit of access that nobody else will see. A lovely story with him and the kids, something a bit different, sunny day in Wales. So that was, that was the premise. The first alarm bell was when I was on the train down to, it was, it was a place near Swansea, actually. I was on the train to Swansea when I got a call from the guy at McDonald's. And he said, um, yeah, I just wonder if you were going to send me your questions over at any point. Now, we hadn't mentioned sending questions over. That was the first sort of alarm bell. So I said, well, okay, who's asking? He said, well, you know, I think the agent just wants to see the questions. So at that point, I had an option to say no. But okay, I tried to go along with it. So I tapped out 10 questions, tried to keep it really simple. And at that point, Rafa Benitez was the Real Madrid manager. And... Bale was, was doing brilliantly. He was almost scoring at the same level as Ronaldo, all that kind of stuff. So my first five questions, really easy questions. Um, you know, how good a manager is Rafa Benitez? What's it like playing with Ronaldo? It must be wonderful. You know, just try to keep it really bland. And then two questions about McDonald's, which is they, they want you to ask. One question about meeting the kids and a couple of questions about Wales. Got off the train at Swansea Station and I got a call from the guy saying... Yeah, your questions are really good. Some of the best questions I've ever seen. But can we just um, scrub out the first five of them, please? He, he doesn't want to speak about Real Madrid. So you're like, right, I'm going to interview a Real Madrid player who doesn't want to speak about Real Madrid. So got to this, got this interview. Instead of it being me and Gareth, the entire Welsh press were there because they'd, Wales had played the night before. The Welsh lads were only doing their job, but they'd got wind that Gareth Bale was going to be available at this event. They'd piled along. Suddenly there was me as the Sunday journalist, as a kind of pariah, because they're all daily journalists and they want to get something for now and I want to keep something. So they did that interview with Gareth. They actually did a brilliant job with them. I was listening and you know, they, they knew everything about Wales and I had very little knowledge of, of, of the stuff they were talking about, but it was a really good interview. And then it was my chance to speak to Gareth. Um, so they said, right, you, you sit down with Gareth on this table and... People started gathering around. There was a McDonald's PR guy. There was a couple of PR guys from the League of Wales, um, FA of Wales. There were a couple of people from the agents, from his agency, somebody from the local football club. There were 10 people in the end standing above us. Gareth and I are sitting at a table, supposed to be doing a one-on-one, and there are 10 hangers-on towering over us, listening to, to every question. And... The, 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 the press guy said, right, you've got 10 minutes. So, right, you've got 10 minutes to get a one-on-one interview. You can't ask about Real Madrid. So I, I just started off asking about, isn't it great seeing kids play football? And <laughs> I just hoped it might go somewhere. Really bland interview. Right towards the end, I thought, right, I remember reading about how Gareth Bale really likes Tetley's tea bags. So <laughs> I was desperate at this oh point. Oh, God, Johnny. Really desperate. So oh I thought, God. right, a bit of human insight, Gareth. You know, when you when you come back, you stay with your mum and dad, and is it nice being at home? I believe you can't get proper, you know, English tea and so on in in, in Madrid. And he loved it. He was like, oh yeah, I love my Tetley's tea. He said, I, I love my digestive biscuits. I've got a bag. It's full of all these stuff. I'm going to take them back to Madrid. It's what a treat it is. So I went out of the interview thinking, well, that was utterly rubbish. But at least I've got one kind of little human anecdote. <laughs> about this superstar footballer who loves his mom, loves his Tetley's tea. You know, it's corny, but it's, it's an intro. It's him with his bags packed, going back to Madrid full of stuff. <laughs> I wrote the piece, and the McDonald's guy said, right, you're going to need to send it to us. So I said, well, we, we don't do copy approval at the Sunday Times, but I, on a trust basis, you can have a look at it. I sent it over to them. Came back to me. Yeah, it's a really good piece. Um, LAUGHTER could you just cut out all that stuff about Tetley's tea and chocolate biscuits? And I was like, why on earth would I cut that out? And he said, well, Gareth's agent just feels that he might be seen as promoting unhealthy eating. Now, this was at a McDonald's press event. (laughs) (laughs) So at that point... I have to say, I did dig my heels in. I got my little Tetley's tea <laughs> intro for what it was worth. But bizarrely, the other thing that I had to, the other thing I had to take out the copy, the, the deal was, I'd mentioned that Gareth Bill was Real Madrid's record signing. that he'd cost, I think, £91 million. And they made me take that out because Cristiano Ronaldo was very, very sensitive about the fact that Bale cost more than him. 
So when Real Madrid announced the fee in Spain, they actually announced a lower fee in Spain than they announced that was, was announced in the UK. So I had to take the transfer fee out just in case Cristiano was, was reading it. So it was, a, I, it was a horrible experience, really, because I just felt I'd bent far too much as a journalist, and what I produced was, was PR copy, really. Sounds horrific. <laughs> Over to you, Michael. Um, I remember... I don't remember the interview being particularly bad. It was more the kind of unique circumstances of getting it. One of Peter Lawwell's successors, eh, sorry, predecessors as uh, Celtic chief executive was a guy called Alan MacDonald. I remember I was at the Sunday Herald and the Scotland on Sunday, a big rivalry at the time, and the SOS had got this story that MacDonald was leaving. So we got basically got our backsides kicked for not having this story right. And the editor at the time, Andrew Jasmine, decided normally, I mean, a week is a long time. You, know, you think, okay, right, it's done, leave it, forget it, move on. But no, no, he had a bee in his bonnet about this and said we wanted to basically get the real story that Alan McDonald wasn't leaving in this kind of cosy way. He was kind of getting booted out and mm-hmm. you find out that he was getting booted out and you <laughs> write this piece. So an incredibly uncomfortable piece to do and to try and dig around and find dirt on Alan McDonald. So did it, did a piece and, uh, you know, the real story of why Alan McDonald was leaving. Sure enough, four days later, a legal lawyer's letter comes in with all the points of defamation and libel and all the rest of it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Christ, here we go. So I think it went down to 22 different points in, in the article that had been uh, offensive to Mr. McDonald's lawyers anyway. So we, uh, the paper kind of came up with this. First of all, it was going to be quite a fulsome apology, but then we managed to kind of whittle it down to kind of a tiny little apology <laughs> and, and an interview with Alan MacDonald. What a result. Uh, so I went along to Parkhead and interviewed Alan MacDonald, and it was uh, perfectly civil and fine and good, and he gave me a lift back from Parkhead <laughs> to Queen Street Station. So that wasn't a bad interview. It was just a kind of unique set of circumstances to get it. My worst experience, and we've all, you know, not to the extent mm. of Johnny with his Tetley's teabag and <laughs> bail, but that element of control and obstruction and difficulty has, has crept in hugely. My first job was at the Inverness Courier. There was a time in 1989, I think, when Celtic played a friendly in Inverness, memorable only f- to me because Jackie Jackanowski made his debut for Celtic in that game, funnily enough. But they said, the paper said to me, why don't you try and get Billy McNeil, who was a Celtic manager at the time, to speak about the game and preview the game? And I got him on the phone by phoning Celtic and saying, can you put me through to Billy McNeil? And I think they might have said, you know, phone back in an hour or whatever. But we got him. Now, it is utterly unthinkable <laughs> today that anybody could do get through uh, the Celtic now actually Neil Lennon's pr- relatively accessible if he would stop changing his phone number every <laughs> every 10 days it would help <clears> but, <throat> but Stephen Gerrard I'd be surprised if there's a football writer in the country that has Stephen Gerrard's telephone number so you know that level of access has completely disintegrated and to go back to the worst ever interview it's no great story to it other than his attitude was absolutely stinking from the moment I got down there I had arranged an interview with Don Hutchison when he was at <laughs> Sunderland uh, and Don Hutchison was briefly a Scotland hero, if you remember, because he scored the winner at, yeah. uh, at Wembley. And um, he was a kind of hot ticket. He was a good player for Scotland for a while. So I arranged this through the press office, come down on Thursday. Sunderland's no one easy place to get to, public transport, you know, to get to the training ground and all that. And I got there and the players were coming off training. I was a wee bit early. Straight away, you can tell body language, you can tell a guy's demeanour, his whole attitude to you. Hutchinson immediately was giving it kind of confusion. Oh, I thought this was tomorrow, looking at his watch. The rest of the team, I think they had some sort of day out or afternoon off or some jolly up and all his mates were piling onto a, like a van to go somewhere in, <laughs> in, the, in whatever the nearest town at the training ground. So I said, oh, God almighty, you know, and I'm looking to go down there like Johnny. You know, you're looking for a big proper sit-down. I mean, you're talking at least half an hour, mm. ideally an hour before they get bored and start looking at their watch. And uh, he said, well, well, we can do it just now. We can do it just now. And he stood there in his training gear, in his, in his socks, holding his boots. Well, I went through the kind of complete farce of speaking to him <laughs> for about five or six minutes just to justify having come all the way from Sunday, and I thought my biggest regret subsequently was that I just wrote it up as a kind of yeah. general mm. Don Hutchison <coughs> speaks about Sunderland, a bit about Scotland. What I should actually have done is just absolutely written what happened and let people decide because it was it was rude, yeah. you know. If you didn't want to do the interview, just say don't do the yeah. interview. Mm. You know, don't don't let somebody travel whatever it was two two and a half hours to come down. 
We had no, no prior history with Hutchison, no, no issue. Hadn't criticised him, he had no reason to not do the interview. But um, the ironic thing is, Hutchison is now emerging as quite a good pundit, uh, you know, and yeah. <laughs> comes across well and sounds <laughs> likeable and decent and all the rest of it. But, you know, you've got to judge people as you found them, and I, 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 you let me down, you know. We've got, like, one more little section that we wanted to do, and um, I did promise you an audio-visual visual spectacular, <laughs> and you've had one extra slide. So <laughs> Neil is going to set up a little video of a messy goal. We'll, I think we'll play it first, and then, mm. yeah, we'll, we'll go into Brilliant ball from Banniger. Is this the opener? Yes, it is! That's what they came to see. And he's provided the touch. As arms are reached up to the gods. Stylish finish, which Maradona himself would have been proud of. OK, so the reason that we, we showed that goal is um, we want to talk a little bit about live reporting, um, which is a theme in Deadlines mm. and Darts with Delhi. And you witnessed this, this goal mm. live, and it was the sort of... It was the kind of piece of action that you could only really appreciate to be in the stadium. So can you tell us a little bit mm. about how significant it is to actually be there and watch it with your own, your own eyes? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think certainly as my career has gone on, I've thought more and more about the difference between the live experience and, and the TV experience. And I've become, I guess, more and more passionate about the live experience. Because when you're at a game these days, you're very, very conscious that, that your view of things in terms of the fine detail is nothing like as good as the viewers back home. You know, television does such an incredible job now that... Um, looking at instants in, in fine detail, looking at analysis of, of, of instants and replays and so on, the person at home is going to get a better picture than you. So as, as a reporter, you've got to ask yourself, why am I here? What am I doing? What value can I add that the, 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 the reader back home can't get from, from watching all of this on, on TV? And I, 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 I think that there's a, I still think there's a huge difference between watching sport live and, and, and consuming it through a filter of, of media. I think on TV, and that, that goal's probably an example, it irons things out. I think everything looks slightly the same. You've got the, the, the standard camera angle. The, the match is played at a particular pace on TV. You get no sense of, of, of the immediacy. I think when you're, when you're there, first, the f most obvious thing is that you're not just looking at a f fixed camera point. You're not just seeing what a, a director wants you to see. You can look around, you can see the whole thing, you can see a whole picture of the game, but you can also take in the, what's happening with the supporters, you can look at what's happening on the, on the touchline, you can get a much greater sense of the context of, of, of moments. You also get a sense of, of the pace that football's played at. I just don't think the pace that of modern high-class football comes across on TV you know, the matches I see in World Cups in the Premier League now are frighteningly fast, frighteningly intense in terms of, of pressing, in terms of effort. And it's only being near the action that you can, you can really get a sense of that. You also get a sense of when a player makes a touch or makes a pass, what kind of pressure they're under, what kind of pressure from, from opponents. And there's that thing about the feel for a, a game situation, that, that tension in the stadium that, again you can't really get, even if you've got the best commentator in the world, you, you don't feel that in the same way than, that you're at a game. That's why we all still go to football. So with that Messi goal, that is one of the best goals, if not the best goal I've ever seen live in, in, in my life. And I'm not quite sure if, if the quality of the goal comes across on TV, but being there in the stadium told me why that was such a great goal. And it was such a great goal because Argentina against Nigeria in their final group game, Argentina were completely on the brink. They were staring down the barrel of, of this horrendous humiliation of, of being dumped out of quite an easy group with the, the remnants of what they thought were a golden generation led by Messi in the team. They had Sam Paoli, the, the, the manager who just had proved chaotic. Uh, I'd been to his press conference the day before and, you know, this odd wee barrel-chested guy that tattoos and, uh, you know, sort of carried himself, you know, in, in, in this really sort of on football manager way. And when this goal came about, Argentina were 20 minutes into the game. They were failing in front of your eyes. Nigeria were fitter, they were quicker, they were pressing them. The, the Argentinian fans who I'd, I'd watched turn up at the stadium in St. Petersburg were starting to turn on their team. 
you could see from your, 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 your angle in the press box how chaotic Argentina were. There, were no, there was no shape about the team whatsoever. You could see the body language of players was, was really negative. They were you know, arguing with each other. They were looking to each other for inspiration. But amid it all, there was Messi, who was just under the most enormous pressure in that game because this narrative in Argentina that he's never delivered for them, there's a narrative generally that Ronaldo's always done better than him at tournaments and Ronaldo had had his great performance against Spain at that World Cup so there was huge pressure on Messi and again at the game what you could see which you probably didn't see on TV was every time he got the ball the two or three Nigerian players around him trying to press him trying to trying to close his space and as I say you only see this one camera angle when you're when, when you're watching on TV but when the ball was struck to Messi you noticed him on the move before anyone else on the pitch. It was the first thing you saw, this little dart of, of blue and white, Messi going for the ball. The way the ball dropped was so difficult for a, bomb, for a player to control. And watching Messi run at top speed, the ball coming over his shoulder, him anticipating it, and making that perfect little touch with his, with his right thigh. If, the, if, if it had stopped just there, it would have been absolute perfection. It was an incredible bit of football, even just to that point that he's killed the ball. But then seeing the ball drop and... Again, you can see whether players in balance or off balance when you're watching it live. Completely off balance when he's running through. It was so difficult. But you could see him align his body and get in balance for that one sweet moment that he needed to. And then he strikes it with his right foot, which of course is his weak foot. His most perfect goal past the goalkeeper. And then the release of tension. It just had everything about it in terms of technical quality, anticipation, but also this great story behind it in the game itself. And on, you know, on TV, on social media, they were acclaiming the goal. But I think only being there and experiencing all these things together could you really understand how good it was and how important it was. And I think us as writers, that's, that's the thing that we can do that, that people can't get from watching TV. We've got to try and bear witness to that. And it's difficult sometimes, but I think that's the reason why there's still a point to being at football matches and, 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 and writing about them and live reporting. I felt very similar with Johnny Russell's second goal against San Marino at the weekend. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's an interesting point, that, though, Johnny, because mm. uh, there is a lot of discussion yep. in, in the industry about whether match reports are redundant are or not. Yep. Because certainly for the bigger matches, anybody that's uh, interested enough is going to watch them. They're either going to be there or a huge yeah. percentage of them are televised. So there is a great ongoing debate, and it's, it's gone on for a number of years now in newspapers without really coming to any conclusion about whether there's still an appetite for an eight or 900-word match mm. report that, 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 that we guys try and, try and get into the paper straight away and file on the whistle, you know. And I must admit that, uh, you know, journalists, football journalists and referees are probably, apart <laughs> from being equally unpopular with people, <laughs> they're probably the only two people, sets of people that are seeing something uh, once. Um, it's, maybe, it's maybe the, the technology is better for Johnny in the, in the English Premier League games and grounds will have monitors and screens and you're able to see things again but by and large in Scotland apart from Hamden um, none of the club grounds would have a would have a monitor that you're able to see replays of anything now you know, that, that's fine but it does leave the writer really exposed compared to people who are seeing mm. a handball or a penalty shout or is a ball over the line is a foul a bad foul you're seeing it umpteen times and then uh, that can le- that can expose a writer because you get it, you get to see it once. Now you can use Twitter as a kind of guide, but <laughs> that that's pretty unreliable, and, and you've got to be very careful because Twitter reactions are extreme, as you know. But if you think about the the, the, the professional game, I mean, there's a reason why scouting still takes place by you know going live and laying eyes on a player. Yes, stats are, in, are into it. Yes, video. Um, tapes of players go around the world and, and are studied but for big signings clubs want to see players live because they want to see body language they want to see whether those skills are being executed uh, you know, at pace under pressure, all that kind of stuff they want to see someone read a game and, and if you, I'm sure some of you have seen Messi live when he's come to Celtic Park or whatever but one of the things you notice about Messi on the pitch is he spends a lot of the time not moving he spends a lot of the time finding little pockets to stand in always in space when he finds space, he just stays there. He doesn't, doesn't buzz he walk, around. He walks. He walks a lot. He walks, doesn't he? Mm. Yeah. And then he's off before anyone has twigged where he's going next, but he mm. knows where the ball's going to go. And you can only see that by, by being there. I would like to get 
a few questions in. Neil's got a, a roving microphone, so if, you, if you'd like to ask a question, then, then stick your hand up. Thank you. Um, uh, really, my question is for, for Johnny. I really want to ask Johnny for the, the benefit of everybody here. What was it like writing the Leicester 2016 story in Leicester? Well, terrifying is the first answer because I'd, I'd moved to Leicester in March 2016 and I was commissioned to write a book in April 2016 and it had to be produced by um, August 2016. So I had to fake a lot of knowledge about Leicester or, or, or rather acquire a lot of very quick knowledge about Leicester to make a convincing book. But it was, a, it was an incredible time to see a football story happening. First of all, the first thing that struck me was to a city that isn't a particularly big football city. I think you can smell how important football is to a place. You know, I, 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 I always loved working in Glasgow. I think one of the things that makes working in Glasgow an incredible privilege is football matters more here than, than any other city in Britain. And I've lived in, in Liverpool, which was probably a close second. It's, whereas Leicester, you know, the people of Leicester tell me that when they, they built the shopping centre, the High Cross shopping centre, that, that was actually more important than winning the league. And they're kind of self-deprecating, but there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a point to that. But it was... It was it was incredible seeing this city that wasn't really a football place being, being swept up in this story, spending a kind of weird six to eight weeks where Manchester United didn't matter, Liverpool didn't matter, Arsenal and Chelsea didn't matter. You were going down every week to this little football club and seeing Claudio Ranieri's press conferences, the numbers growing by the, the week and... and the, the story sort of, you know, becoming more and more, well, coming closer to fruition, but seeming all the more improbable as it, um, as it got close to fruition. And I guess seeing how unaffected the, the, the players were was, was, was quite remarkable. Um, they found a way to insulate themselves from, from the pressure. And then watching the, the, the outpouring in, in the city when, when it took place, I mean, people didn't really know what to do because they never had anything to to celebrate before in Leicester. There was no sort of formula, but it was kind of nice, nice because of that. And I, I can't talk about that without mentioning being at the stadium in, in October when um, the heli helicopter went down and, and the chairman died and then seeing the outpouring after that because I think, looking back, the, the, the Leicester title story was... It was one half of, of what's now a whole story, which is, I guess, the story of, of, of the, the, the chairman, the owner that was behind it all, building the club up. This guy that had come in from, from outside, from Thailand, who had said almost straight away that I want to be in the Champions League in three years. This has been less than the championship, and, and people thought he was crazy, and he turned out to be undersold his club and, and won the league. But then seeing the aftermath of his death, what, what he actually meant to people... All sorts of people in this sort of quiet city came out and told stories about, oh, well, he, he actually donated to our school or he visited our hospital ward or, you know, he, he bought a new, built a new car park at this cricket club and all these sort of stories came out and the, the city was kind of united again. You were, like, you were back in, in the space you were in 2016, but for completely different reasons. And, of course, things keep happening to Leicester with Mr. Rogers arriving, so... It's, it, it feels incredible that this really small, average football club, average city has had so much that's happened to it in, in three or four years. And um, it'll be interesting to see where Brendan takes it next. What's the difference between a pundit and a journalist? And uh, if there is a difference, how do you regard each other, if at all? Wow. That's a great question, isn't it? I mean, the first thing that you notice from, from, from pundits is, is, I mean, a lot, a lot of them are ex-players, and they often say, well, journalists never played the game, we played the game, so how can journalists comment? I mean, my, my comeback to that would always be, that's true, but we are the trained communicators, so you've never been a trained communicator, now you're doing our jobs. But I think what you're getting at is, is probably impartiality. I think all pundits, because they, well, they, they tend to be ex-players or managers, are associated with particular football clubs or particular people in football and that gives them incredible knowledge that we can't touch but it also compromises them in some ways where they're always going to talk up their pals and they're not going to criticize certain people even Graham Souness who's a very fearless pundit but he's quite soft on Liverpool I think um, and I think if we've got a role it's it's to to still try and be impartial and 
uh, objective and maybe try and piece it in a, in a bigger context than just having played the game. But I have to say, the standard punditry is so high now that it frightens me as a journalist that the job that some of these guys do is, you know, I'll be honest, I watch Monday Night Football sometimes and, and it, it blows us out <coughs> of the park. So it's harder and harder to compete sometimes. It, it was interesting when the, the Rangers story really kind of imploded in 2012 because it, it became a, I mean, it became an incredibly complicated story to to uh, to cover and to comment on because it, it, it was fast moving, it was very technical, it was very legal. To be honest, a lot of the sports journalists were not equipped to to do it, but um, had to do it and had to write a lot about it. And I know that from uh, Radio Scotland's experience that they found that. The pundits, which were, as Johnny says, largely ex-players, <coughs> were very uncomfortable talking about that sort of stuff. And I, not not that they were being shy of it; they just they were struggling to really get the complexity of it. And that's why they, they tended to bring in print journalists at that point. So print journalists were were used a lot. And, and now that that the Rangers thing has kind of blown over, or at least the, the, we're still feeling the after effects of it. But the, you know the main drama is over. You know the, the pundits, football pundits, are more prominent in terms of being ex-players. You know, so that was a really an interesting thing I thought because it showed the, the strengths of football pundits, but maybe also the limitations as well. The boys are going to be out at the signing table in front, so. Mm. Uh, if you want to hang about and, and chat to them there, then, then no problem at all. Um, there's a big bundle of Johnny's books there, Deadlines and Darts with Delhi. Um, I'm not sure we've been able to get any of Michael's book, Fergie Rice's, due to popular demand, I think that it's is. Sold Michael's sold out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you can download it as an e-book um, if there's not any copies out there. But yeah, I think it's been fantastic listening to the guys talk. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. And thanks for Johnny and Michael. Cheers, thank you. Hope you enjoyed that and thanks for listening. Subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. Now for the new season of Between the Lines. We are recording it right now and it should be released over the summer. More details to follow but it will include a documentary on one of the best loved sports books of the last 20 years, The Miracle of Castel de Sangro by Joe McGuinness. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.